So this morning, uh, we're talking about, so this is apologetics, right? And so we're, we're going through several issues as it relates to the church and how do we think about challenges to, yeah, some intellectual traditions in the church, things of this nature. Um, what we're talking about today is kind of a, a question of what about abuses and the church, abuse in the church. Um, so your handout is kind of missing that title, but that would be the title of this class. W- what about abuse in the church? Um, and so as I was preparing for this morning, it just, yeah, it struck me how incredibly heavy this particular topic is, um, how much of a, yeah, pastoral concern or, or caring concern um, I have about that particular topic. Just for a variety of reasons, um, lots of people have been impacted directly by various types of types of abuses. Uh, certainly, people have big hearts for people who have been impacted by abuse, and so there's a sense in which this this particular topic, in terms of apologetics, is just a little weightier, a little heavier, at least for me personally. Um, and so, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray and ask ask the Lord for some help here. Um, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we, yeah, we do confess that the, the topic of abuse in the church is, is heavy and weighty um, and difficult. Uh, who can stand in the face of such grievous, painful things? Um, but we do have hope in Christ who redeems and restores and brings justice, Lord. And so as we try to think through the topic of abuse through a, a biblical lens, we do ask for, for grace and for understanding about how these things can be and what our response to such things should be. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So I was, as I was reviewing my notes this morning, it struck me one thing that I was leaving out, and, and it's actually not on your handout, is just a little bit of a discussion on God's heart for the abused um, and, and kind of his, yeah, his posture towards that. Now, so I just, wanted, I just want to say at the, at the jump that the Lord is deeply concerned for sufferers, deeply concerned for people who, yeah, suffer at the hands of sinful people, um, suffer at the hands of abusers. The Old Testament um, is filled with several types of laws that are designed to protect the vulnerable, um, women and children, slaves and sojourners, um, and often in abuse, not always, but often there is a kind of power disparity happening, and the Old Testament is, is very loud about how God has a deep concern for protecting the vulnerable, um, which oftentimes are the victims of abuse. Uh, one brief example comes from Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, which says this, the Lord God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in a land of Egypt. So you hear this heartbeat for those who could be vulnerable uh, to people who have some level of authority or ability or uh, power. And the Lord is deeply concerned for those who might be impacted by that. In the New Testament, we see very clearly that Christ loves children who also are often the victims of domestic abuse or sexual predation or any of these things. He tells the disciples to let the little children come to him, but he also gives warning to those who would harm children, very specifically in Matthew 18, 1 through 6. And I'll read it for us. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck 
and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So we see Christ's concern for children, for folks who could be hurt, and a warning to those who would cause them to sin, harm them in the most grievous of ways. Practically speaking, victims of abuse often struggle with particular types of sin related to the experiences that they've had at the hands of abuser. Psalm 146.9 tells us that the Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked will come to ruin. So if you're in here, you've been abused, or you have those who have been abused, know that such things are very near and dear to the Lord's heart. He's deeply concerned about it. He loves you, and he will bring justice to those who have abused you. Scripture tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this comes through Jesus. So I wanted to, that seemed, yeah, I wanted to put some weight on the front end here of of the Lord's heart for the abused before we started to get into kind of the technical definitions of, of what these things are. So that, that is kind of an encapsulation of the Lord's heart for the abused. But I also want to talk about what is abuse. And so this is the first item on your handout. Um, there's a lot of ways people define abuse. So I took a pretty straightforward Merriam-Webster's dictionary uh, and then added one of my own. Uh, Merriam-Webster has four types of abuse. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm positive there are many more uh, definitions and examples of types of abuse. But the four that come from Merriam-Webster are this. The first would be a corrupt practice or custom. So that's your first line. A corrupt practice or custom. So examples of this would be the buying of votes election abuses, financial abuses, kind of, yeah, enriching yourself at the expense of others, stealing, you know, in a church context, stealing money from the church. These would be kind of a corrupt practice or custom. It's the first type of abuse. Second type of abuse, improper or excessive use of a substance or thing. So, again, an improper or excessive use of a substance or thing. So this what comes to mind here, some tangible examples, um, alcohol, drugs, um, even, yeah, can be even more innocent things like food or things of that sort. So this, this improper use, indulgence in, overindulgence in things that can harm us, right? Third type of abuse, um, verbal abuse. So language that condemns or vilifies, usually unjustly, intemperately, or angrily. So this is kind of a verbal beration, um, yeah, constant criticism, hateful speech, uh, things of this sort. Fourth, physical maltreatment. So this can be domestic abuse, physical abuse, uh, physical abuse of children, sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape, child predation, things of this sort. The one, the one that's part of this, uh, well, not part of this, one that Miriam Webster is not concerned with, but I think we as a church are concerned with, is the idea of spiritual abuse or abuse in the church. And this would simply be a misuse of spiritual things, um, an abuse of trust that naturally comes in a church context. So abuse in the church can be defined as the harmful misuse of finances, authority, structures, people, and trust in the church, in the church context. Um, so those five, those are the five kind of types, definitions of abuse that came to mind for me. Um, again, I don't think this list is exhaustive, so I'll turn it over. I'll ask you guys, are there any types of abuse that I'm missing here? And I've, if I've nailed it, that's, that's fine. <laughs> emotional. Emotional. Yes. Emotional abuse. So using this framework, um, a, good, a good use of, or maybe a good definition of emotional. Actually, why don't you give me your definition of emotional abuse? Uh, it's the torturing or abusing of for my purpose. 
to make you feel worse about yourself mm. that makes you look better, which is kind of that same enriching yourself at someone else's expense, yeah. but just in that emotional way that it yep. makes the person feel something in themselves that is negative. So the type of act here is emotional abuse, and if I am hearing you properly, emotional abuse could be defined as the use of words, emotions to manipulate somebody in order to make yourself feel better, be better, empowered, if you want to use that word. Yeah. Anything else I'm missing? Ben Robin. Just a question on definitions. Then. Yeah. Um, would you say that part of the part of our definition of abuse ought to include um, power or authority differences? No, not necessarily. Uh, I think power and authority is common in abuse cases because if somebody has authority over someone, um, they can misuse that authority in abusive ways. But uh, for me to yeah, for me to physically abuse somebody, they, they need not necessarily be weaker than me. I think it's common, but not necessary. Any other questions or comments on definitions and types of abuse? Okay, awesome. Um, so when we're talking about abuse in the church context, there's kind of a, a twofold harmful element here. So there's the sinful act itself. There's the, there's the type of abuse. There's what you know, verbal abuse or physical abuse or a financial abuse. That is evil in of itself. But there's also harm done to the church as an institution, the church's credibility, trust in the church, and ultimately our witness to Christ. So there's both the thing itself, and then there's the secondary effect of hurting the church's witness. Abuse is perpetrated by individuals and individuals within the church, but individuals can take specific advantage of church structures to enable that abuse, which leads to kind of a series of what I'm calling devastating impacts of abuse in the church. And so that's B on your outline. Um, the first one that I kind of alluded to is disrepute on the name of Christ. Disrepute on the name of Christ. Uh, I'm pulling from 2 Peter 2 here. Um, would somebody be willing to read 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3? And then somebody else read 2 Peter 2, 13 through 16. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Why don't you go ahead and read 13 to 16 as well. 13? 13 to 16, yeah. Suffering wrong as the wage for their... Maybe I'll start at 12. Yep. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in grief, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's So what we see here, uh, so when we talk about disrespute on the name of Christ, in this text, we see the way of truth will be blasphemed because of people following their sensuality and using false words. And later in the text, we see some of their motivations. They are insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. They're reveling in their deceptions. They're, yeah, eyes full of adultery. When they talk about Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, this is often the heart of things like financial abuse. I want to gain financially by abusing the finances of a church, stealing, whatever it may be. 
When I have eyes full of adultery, I am insatiable for sin. I'm being driven by carnal lusts that can lead me to abuse others for sexual purposes. All of this leads to a kind of, yeah, a blasphemy of the way of truth. Or, as I said earlier, a disrepute on the name of Christ. And this ought not be. The thing is evil in of itself, but it's also bringing harm to the witness of Christians and the church. And ultimately, disrepute to Christ, which is a grievous, horrible thing. Second, uh, second devastating impact of abuse in the church is diminishing trust in the church. One of the qualifications for elders is that he must be well thought of by outsiders, and it stands to reason that some of this must also transfer to the church as a whole, at least in terms of conduct. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about how serious the church is to take sin. It's a church discipline case. Someone is sinning sexually in a grievous way, and Paul instructs the church at Corinth to put that person outside of the congregation. This is why we have things like membership and discipline, to witness to the world how Christ changes us, to say this is what a Christian looks like. And so when the church, or when abuse happens in the church, uh, when Christians are guilty of abuse, we start to muddle those categories. It's very easy for the world to point at the church and say, what do you, how can you possibly say that you believe the things you believe when there's grievous things like abuse happening in the church? So there's a diminishing of trust in the church. And then three, also tragically, a departure of faith. Here I'm thinking of Matthew 13, 19. Would somebody like to read that? This is in the larger context of the parable of, uh, yeah, the parable of the sower. Yep. Anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the so the parable talks about the seeds being sown and birds coming and plucking them away. And Christ later tells the disciples that what this means is that the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in people's hearts. One of the things I've seen is people who have heard the gospel and have started to think about the things of God have used a history of abuse either to themselves personally or at the hands of so-called Christians as a reason why they cannot believe and what Christians have to say. And so a departure of faith is another devastating of impact in abu uh, of abuse in the church. But I'll, I'll again turn to you guys. Are there other, yeah, harmful, devastating, hurtful impacts of abuse in the church that I haven't mentioned here? All right. Number two. Number two, diminishing trust in the church. So the three, just by way of reminder. Um, dis disrepute on the name of Christ, diminishing trust in the church, and departure of faith. All right, next point, point two. Is there an apologetic for abuse in the church? And you'll notice that the, the line here is very small. Um, an apologetic, a defense, the answer is no. There is no, def there is no defense for abuse when it's true. When these are the things that are happening, the church has no excuse um, for abuse. There's no way to mitigate that outside of Christ. There's no way for the church to point to the good stuff it's done and say this outweighs the harm of abuse. There is no defense, but there is hope. We'll get to that. Before we do, my question is, what should the church's response to abuse be? What should the church's response to abuse be? The first is confession. I'm taking this from 1 John 1, 5 through 9. So confession is number one. That text says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think this text is instructive for all of the points I'm going to hit about what the church's response should be, but I'm using it particularly in terms of confession. So practical application here is somewhat straightforward. If there is abuse that we are either committing or are aware of, these things need to be brought into the light. They need to be confessed. Second point, repentance. I mean, the, church, the church's response needs to be one of repentance. Would, would you read Acts 3, 19 through 21, if you, if you may, if you might? Oh, see, I've called on the guy who doesn't have his Bible. I'm sorry. That's my, that's my mistake. Yeah, no. It's my fault. <laughs> uh, Acts 3, 19 to 21. Yeah. Repent. Repent and turn back. If you're, steal- if you're stealing, repent. If you're abusing others, repent. Turn away from that sin. That's the second point. Third response the church should have, transparency. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Transparency. I think there is a instinct to want to protect the institution or to think of things like, well, if we are transparent about harm happening in a church or with a particular pastor, that'll undo all the good work that that church or that pastor has done. However, as Proverbs tells us, There is no good that comes from hiding such things. And we see this. The more folks try to hide it, the more jaded the response from the world is. And also, the more we hide it, the more we continue to fight for our sin. And so transparency is a key response that this church should have. Fourth, about what the church's response should be, accountability. Ben Hamilton, would you read Romans 13, 3 through 4? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in the world? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the one who So accountability, where abuse is criminal and deserves punishment by the ruling authorities, that has to happen. So if there's abuse in the church, abuse of children, abuse of financial things, physical abuse, things that are enforced by criminal statutes, call the cops. Straightforward. We need to bring them in because they do, yeah, they do not bear the sword in vain. They are God's instrument to enforce justice. So if there is abuse that has criminal liability, we need to bring in accountability by the appropriate authorities. If, if it is not a criminal action, then we are still under authority as Christians, members of a local church here at Delray Baptist Church. We are under the authority of the elders. And so this is what church, this is what confronting people like sin with, for their sin looks like. We see processes like in Matthew 18, where we talk to a person about their sin one-on-one and then two-on-one. And eventually, it comes to the elders and the whole of the church. So the office of church member is a real thing. We are here 
to hold one another accountable. So there's accountability even if the type of abuse is not illegal. So that's what the church's response should be. And it feels weighty and it's hard. And for if we're imagining ourselves having a conversation with somebody who wants to engage in a debate about Christianity, kind of an apologetics discussion, um, it's hard to answer this particular question. What about abuses in the church? Because there are abuses in the church, so it's difficult. But we do have something that gives us hope. And this is my next point. We talk about what then can we hope in? It's really simple, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's particular things that I want to focus on as we think about the gospel as it relates to abuse in the church. So one, uh, for the abused, uh, so this is point A, I want to talk about Christ's righteousness. So for the abused, yeah, it is, it is easy to feel ashamed or worthless or any number of difficult, emotional, weighty things. And what I, would, what I would say to the abused or to my interrogator who's asking about what about abuse in the church is there is hope in Christ for the abused. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we get Christ's righteousness. And part of that is... Yeah, when the Lord looks upon us, he doesn't see our sins or transgressions anymore, but he sees Christ's righteousness. But also, it purifies us, sanctifies us, it sets us aside, it makes us holy. And so in this life, for an abuse victim, that is done in part. The Lord starts to cleanse us, to starts to heal some of the effects of sin on us by others in this world. Now, that is only in part. But at the end of all things, when Christ comes to take us home, that'll be complete. And we see this in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, where it talks about Christ wiping away the tears from every eye. So for the one who has been abused, there is hope in Christ. He will come to set things right, impartially now, perfectly then. So there is hope. That is point A under, uh, yeah, that's point A there. B, Christ's justice. So again, for the abuser, if we feel, if, if one feels like there has been no justice, my abuser has gotten away with it, they continue to do what they're doing, Christ's justice. Exodus 34, 7, tells that God by, by no means clear the guilty. Romans 8, 3 says, for what God has done for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So sin in the flesh is condemned, and God will hold the guilty responsible. And so if, you, if there is someone who's been abused, or you love or are concerned for abuse victims, and it seems like the abuser is getting away with something, know that someday justice is coming. And either the abuser will, will pay the consequences for their sin, or Christ paid it on the cross. So there's hope for the abused. There's also hope for the abuser. This is kind of the scandalous grace of the cross, right? I think abusers in our, in our cultural context are, for good reason, loathed. But there's hope for them, too. They, they can turn to Christ, and then Christ, by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross, has paid the debt for their sins also. And so if the abuser turns in repentance, he can, with us, spend eternity with Jesus. And, and this is the wild part, Jesus can break down the wall of hostility between the abuser and the abused in eternity. That's something that probably not going to happen very often in this world. But the grace of the cross can make that happen in the world to come. So the gospel is hope for the abused and the abuser. So what then can we hope in? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And there's two aspects of that we're focusing on here, Christ's righteousness and Christ's justice. So all that being said, I've, I've, I wanted to lay kind of the groundwork of, you know, what our, what the, when we're asked about abuses in the church, our hope is in the gospel, hope for the abused and the abuser. There is no real defense for abuses in the church. Where that happens, Christians have fallen short of what God is calling them to. And our response to that should be, yeah, the four things we mentioned, accountability, transparency, confession, repentance. I wanted to do all that first before I started to talk about actual things that we should consider when we're, when we're having kind of more of those apologetic intellectual discussions. So that, that was, this first section is kind of my pastoral concerns where I feel like the weight falls. But there is also a valid discussion to be had about whether or not abuse is a uniquely Christian problem. So that's point three. Is abuse a uniquely Christian problem? Um, yeah, I'll, I will. I have several examples here of other structures, organizations, institutions, people who have committed abuses. Um, but I'll, yeah. So let's start. Like let's start. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about governmental structures. I don't think any of us have to think very hard to think of political failures when it comes to, yeah, financial abuse, sexual abuse, even, even physical abuse. Uh, literally, last week, I think we can say it, the governor of New York is in, yeah, seems like, by all evidence, reporting of the attorney, just, just, uh, attorney general there, that yeah, he, this is a guy who has abused people. And this is not a Democrat or Republican problem, I want to be very clear, there are dozens of examples from the right side of the aisle as well. Dennis Haster, Speaker of the House, he abused children, boys, specifically, sexually. So political structures, yeah, they have this mess too. What about educational institutions? Um, yeah, I think last year uh, there was an admission scandal where celebrities were paying to get their kids into more prestigious schools than they could get on their own. That's financial abuse. That's partiality. Jerry Sandusky uh, was employed by Penn State University and sexually abused dozens and dozens of boys. The list goes on. Physical abuse in, in schools over his, like course of history in this country and around the world is extensive painful in Canada. They just started discovering the, the graves of children uh, who died from maltreatment and malnourishment in, in schools over the past hundred years. What about athletic organizations? Any, any financial abuse there? Any physical abuse? Uh, yes. Larry Nasser comes to mind. Civic organizations, it's there too. Or other religions. It's there as well. So the question is, is if abuse is not a uniquely Christian problem, what is the problem? And that's a question I'm asking you guys. John. Uh, I think the problem is sin. I think the problem unique, I would say, at least from American perspective of Christianity, is that some folks have a negative impression that we would claim as Christians and we somehow have achieved a perfection in our Christianity. Yep. Um, and so that's why today we are held by a non-Christian to some sort of unachievable standard. Yep. So I think sometimes leveling there is a little bit, a little bit easier to approach. Um, yeah. Yeah, so John's point was that um, the difficulty for Christianity is, is the hypocrisy, right? There's a, there is a difference between what we say we believe and how we should act and what, we're do, what we do. And I almost put that under um, kind of the devastating impacts of abuse in the church. Um, but I thought, yeah, the diminishing of trust kind of covers that. But yeah, one of the reasons trust is diminished in the church is because we say we believe one thing. We say this is what a Christian ought to look like, and yet there's a ton of evidence on the other side. And again, the answer there is, is the gospel. By no means are Christians better people. In fact, uh, I, as a Christian, am probably not, quote-unquote, as moral as plenty of people who aren't Christians out in the world. 
I'm not competing against them necessarily. The, the promise of sanctification is that I am more like Jesus than I was. Not that I'm holier than whoever your secular example would be, right? So the Lord is working on me. He's sanctifying me. And so the promise is that I will look more like Jesus uh, as I continue to walk in the Christian faith uh, than I do now. Um, and that may mean because of the scandal of grace, there are people who are coming in with sin struggles that may shock us, alarm us, outside the bounds of Christian normalcy. Um, but God's grace is for them too. Just like the gospel is for the abused and the abuser, there's nobody who can out the grace of God. So that's, John, that's a, that's a great point. Any other comments on the idea that abuse is a uniquely Christian problem? All right, good. All that being said, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, okay, this is the apologetic section. Abuse isn't just a strictly Christian problem. But what about on the positive side? Has the church done anything uh, in the, to contribute against the fight against abuse? And the answer, by God's grace, is yes. Um, I handpicked a, a couple of examples. There's, there are tons, um, but there are four that came to mind for me. First is somebody I actually didn't know about until I started studying for this class, which is Josephine Butler. She was in the UK during the 1800s. She fought for women's rights and the protection of children and an end to sexual slavery. She was also a committed Christian. Um, she specifically advocated for the raising of the age of consent law as a way to protect children from sexual predation. And her faith was one of the reasons she did that. William Wilberforce, another one, that's B, um, famously was an MP in the UK and fought against slave trade for his entire career and was ultimately successful. So that's another. Sojourner Truth, C, here in America, is an abolitionist who fought for women's and minority rights in the US. Devoted Christian, felt like it was the Lord that told her to go and do these things. And so these are some individuals. There's countless examples of them. Um, but D is more broad. And I think, yeah, I think we're talking about individuals, but the church as, as a whole, if you want to talk about it that way, has also done things to fight abuse. So the example that came to mind here um, was care of, care of orphans and children. Since uh, antiquity, um, leaving infants to die of exposure something that commonly happened. I actually, when I first heard this, I thought it was apocryphal or not true, um, but I've actually looked into it. And as far back as Roman times, um, folks who had a, a child they did not want for any reason would be left somewhere out in nature to, to either have exposure or be picked up by a slave trader or come what may. The parents would leave the children. Um, and it was Christians who went and got the children and then either adopted them or raised them, or even tragically, if the, if the child had passed away, they would bury them. And that ethic has seen throughout Christian tradition for the past 2,000 years. Christians have developed educational institutions, orphanages, and those things aren't perfect. As we've mentioned, those structures have imperfections, sins, abuses. But the impulse of Christians has been to care for those who suffer at the hands of the abuse of neglect, or violence, or war, any of those things. So care for children and infants. It's important to remember that none of these things atone for the abuses of the church. Only Christ's sacrifice does that. But in an apologetic conversation, I don't want someone that we're talking to who isn't a believer to think that Christians have never done what the Lord commands them to do as far as it relates to care for orphans and widows. Last section here, last part, um, I wanted to give us plenty of time to talk about because I've kind of spoken in generalities and that's by intention. I wanted to talk about definitions and what I think the Lord would have us think about abuse and how to respond. Um, but there are several live examples in our culture now, in our church now, um, and in recent history. 
And so I did want to just open the floor to, um, yeah, the question of what instances of abuse have troubled you? Which do you find particularly difficult to talk about with unbelievers or any questions at all that you might have about abuses in the church? Nick. Yeah. Um, so when I typically have conversations with young Christians about this, this topic specifically, is uh, to lament, to by sympathy, right? Uh, but I think the the kind of prevailing argument is for the non-Christian is often like, well. If he was really sympathetic, if God really cared, then he would have let it happen, right? Yeah. So, yeah, like, what, what, what would you say is like? Is there a way to balance against that? Like, how would you respond? Yeah. Um, it's hard to say that there's no apologetic, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. First, I want. I want to say lament is an important part of the Christian experience, right? Like one third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. This is us mourning the brokenness and impacts of sin on the world and crying out to God to fix it. And so I think that is a good place to start. Um, ultimately, what you're talking about is the problem of evil, which is, a, is, is difficult. That is, a difficult uh, that is a difficult question to answer. I typically tack to the incarnation in the sense of like our sin has broken the world and brought death here and a whole host of horrible things and so God is not a God that is far but is near and actually entered in to this brokenness this mess that we made God is willing to enter into that in the person of Jesus Christ and then suffer abuses of which we have no concept for and so God so loved us that he's willing to identify with us and suffer at the hands or the yeah, metaphysical hands of sin and abuse. I mean, he's spit on, he's mocked, he's hit, he's crucified. Um, so he's not a God that stands off and says, that's dirty and that's yucky and I don't want a part of that. He's a God who's willing to subject himself to the same abuses and more so than we can comprehend because he loves us. So that's typically how I answer that question. It's not a straightforward answer, but it demonstrates the love of God that is unique to Christianity. That's wholly the Christian tradition alone. Caleb. So this is, this is a hard question. So I'll preface it with that. But something that I'm thinking about is in Acts 5, when uh, Peter and the disciples Preaching in uh, at the temple, they were warned not to say that Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ, and they came back and they did it again. Yep. Um, and then, although they almost got killed, uh, they get you know advised by uh, Gamaliel, uh, who says, "Don't kill him." And they said, and "This is in 39." So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go which to me sounds like both regular abuse and spiritual abuse. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching in the name of Christ Jesus. Um, that's where, um, I, that to me looks like forgiveness before that there's confession and repentance. Um. So there's, yeah, there's a lot to that. So one, um, it's specific, this is specifically, specifically abuse encountered uh, because they were preaching the name of Jesus. And so they're counting it all joy is, you know, we are suffering for the name of Jesus. So that's one aspect of that joy. Um, forgiveness, uh, yeah, it does appear uh, that they are forgiving the ones who are abusing them. Um, and I think that that is possible desirable maybe yeah uh, but I would say forgiveness does not mean restoration of relationship 
right? So forgiveness is me foregoing my right to exact payment for the debt that you've incurred against me. But that doesn't mean if somebody, like the, yeah, if somebody comes into my house and smashes my lamp, I forgive them and I say, okay, I'm gonna pay for a new lamp. That doesn't mean I'm gonna let you come in my house and handle my lamps anymore. It just means I forgive you, you don't have to pay for that. That does not mean relationship needs to be restored. Now, true repentance, that I would say is a precondition for a restoration of relationship. Yeah, Nick. Uh, what would you say to the person uh, says uh, who is like, yeah, you know, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. The church has had so many abuses, so I'm just not going to be a part of a church. But I'm good with with Jesus. Like he's good to me. I just can't trust his people. Yeah, so that argument sounds good. Uh, unfortunately, um, the problem with that is, is, and I don't mean this in a sassy way, but the problem with that is the Bible. The church is Christ's bride. Jesus loves the church, and so if we love Jesus, we ought love the things that he loves, warts and all. So we can't love the church as we wish it to be. We have to love the church that's in front of us. And that is hard but in that we're emulating Jesus Christ, who loves us warts and all. So that's how I'd respond to that question. Cool. Yeah. Just one thing that's good. Also, I would ask them, like, what does that look like that you say Jesus, Jesus and I have been? Yeah. What does that look like? Right. Yeah. That's a good. So point made was another question to ask the person who's saying, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And it's like, well, what do you mean you and Jesus are good? What does that look like in the context of just, just you, right? Like there is, yeah, to ex- just go a little further, it's, the Bible is clear, like this is a team sport. Christian, the walk of, yeah, Christian life is one that we do in community. Um, it's super clear from scripture, yeah. Oh man, now we got him. Allison. Uh, when I'm looking at this topic and talking to people about it, it's not, I, I don't run into this so much as, uh, I'm not going to be a Christian because there's abuse, but I see a lot of damage um, with people uh, who've, who've been in the church, who've been through it, who've been close to it, who've been aware of it, and it's not even the actual abuse that seems to be what creates the damage, it's the response to the abuse. Oh yeah. So I know so many more people who have either walked or are right now or will, you know, are talking about it, because the church or the Christians involved in the abuse didn't respond well enough. It's confusing sometimes how we're supposed to. Like, if it's a pastor, okay, put him in jail, like, duh. But if it's one Christian against another, what responsibility does the church have? And the church often gets the blame for how the one Christian responded to the other. Like, that response is where I see the problem. Yeah, so Allison's point is... um often what trips people up in terms of faith and Christianity is the response of the church to the abuse instead of the, and not necessarily the abuse itself, which I think is, which I think is true, which is why I did spend some time talking about like, um, yeah, we have to confess, repent, be transparent and accountability. And so, so that's, yeah, I are the, one of the reasons I think you need to be is so again, depending on the type of abuse, um, and what's happening that, so I'm gonna speak in generalities and recognize that by doing so, there's a million specific examples that could be counter to this. Um, but generally speaking, if we're talking about criminal abuse, um, yeah, confessing, confessing and being transparent immediately uh, is A, what I think the Bible commands us to do, but B, uh, makes things very clear for the congregation. Um, if, if, if uh, yeah, if church government, elders let out a little bit of something that happened, like, oh, you know, there was an affair when in actuality it was a rape, right? Let's, this is horrible things to think, but let's say, let's, say, let's say it's something like that. And then it comes out later that it was something more than just an affair. The people who hear that are like, well, you, you've lied. So now you've added and obscured something you've, you've added sin to sin, and that just destroys trust. 
And so that's why like transparency, as soon as humanly possible, uh, is necessary. And also accountability, right? Like so, if if somebody's stealing money from the the offering bag and they get caught, it's like yes, there's going to be criminal liability for that. We're going to call the police to handle that. But also uh, accountability within the church structure can mean increased safeguards against how we handle money or things like that. So, um, yeah, that's why I think confession, transparency, and repentance are so important. Uh, first of all, vertically to the Lord, like that's what he wants from us, right? So that's, I mean, there, one of the struggles of this conversation is we can get locked into the horizontal stuff really easily because it's a lot of human to human abuse. But first and foremost, like we have, we have sinned against the Lord and the Lord first, and he's what matters most. So like, A, that's what he's commanding us to do. But B, like the way to regain trust is not by hiding things or covering it up, as Proverbs tells us. It's, it's rather to bring that to the light. Walk in the light as Christ is in the light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people are blaming him yep. for how the parents responded like, yep. no Right. And ultimately that's the trouble, right? Abuse is a abuse is a human problem. Um and and it, the problem is sin. And the hope the only hope we have is still in Jesus, right? Regardless of the circumstances. When someone oh sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. When someone in leadership position of So, to rehabilitate, to rehabilitate them. Yep. So Josh's question, if somebody has fallen into criminal abuse, um, what does it look like to restore that person? My answer is going to be unsatisfying. That is entirely case dependent. Um, what we're looking for as, as, yeah, as, as elders is, I mean, A, how grievous is the offense? Some offenses, some offenses are so grievous that returning to pastoral ministry is done. Um, right. What's that? Can be, yeah. Um, because you need to be, as an elder, you need to be well thought of by outsiders. And so if, if somebody is, if it's splashed across national news media that you've done something that brings shame on the name of Christ, like your ministry is probably done um, and probably should be. Uh, however, the question is, what does restoration look like? Um, what, what we're looking for is demonstrated repentance over time, um, a change in um, yeah, heart affections and then really clear accountability structures that they themselves desire. At least those are the things I'm looking for. Actually, Ben, if you have, I'd be curious if you have anything to add to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Caleb, I think you're going to be the last question. Well, let me go here first because you asked one already. Uh, you actually answered some of the previous or like you hit on some subjects that like to answer my question this previous question but yep. I know a a mother she's been very verbally and physically abusive to one of her daughters mm-hmm. and actually all her kids but particularly one of them uh, I mean they're both Christian the mother and the daughter but that divide has become so hatred and so split apart to where you know they they don't talk to each other they're they're quote-unquote dead to each other. Mm-hmm. How would you go about by telling them, I guess, like, you need to fix, like, you guys need to go to Christ? Um, so the question is, there's a relationship that's been marked by verbal and emotional, not physical? Yes, too. Okay. Emotional, physical, and verbal abuse. Um, how then do we encourage them to restore their relationship. So again, totally case dependent. Um, if somebody's in physical danger, I don't think there's a need to restore that relationship. Uh, I think we live in peace with all men so far as it depends on us. That can mean protecting ourselves. Um, and so that we, I alluded to this with Caleb before. Um, if somebody, we can forgive and we, we are called to forgive by scripture. But 
restoration of relationship to where it was before the the abuse happened, that's something that you know takes time uh, and repentance by the by the person who is doing the abusing, and is also not something that has to happen at least on this side of eternity. Um, yeah. This was, uh, there was a guy I was talking to, he was, he was not a Christian, and he uh, came to me because he was having trouble in his relationship that is basically a marriage relationship, even though it's not a marriage relationship. Um, and after hearing his thing, I uh, pointed him to Ephesians, uh, and I started out, I said, all right, I'm going to give you two steps. Number one, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is the head of the church. The church is the Christ, and also wives just submit to everything to their husbands, to which he's like, yes, yes, yes. I said, all right, now here's the letdown. Number two, and I said, um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her, um, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. And he goes, okay, what's bad about that? And I said, has your wife literally crucified you yet? Well, no. And I said, well, it seems you have a long way to go because there was a lot of bad back and forth strife uh, going through that. And so, one of the things that I, uh, on, with a lot of abuse that is like, especially less than criminal, um, I, I think there is um, the, the tactics, the ability, and just the strength. I think one of the things that he needed, at least for me, was to just, he's in the middle of all of this back and forth. He needs someone to come to him, nothing just to vent, to calm his own spirit down so that he can endure what he's enduring, even if it is wrongful, and kind of just take it, you know, take it on the chin. Um, and and that's that's something that is, I, I think that's a lot of what it means to love as Christ loved, because Christ did take a whole lot on the chin. Um, and it's kind of like, how does, I think that's what the church needs to do in, in a lot of situations like this. And so I guess it's just the dynamics of, of forgiveness in situations where, yeah, that was wrong. But you're supposed to love like Christ loved. And so how does, how does, how does the church participate that? How do we just in our daily lives do that? Yeah, so I think actually both of your questions kind of get at this a little bit. Um, so there's a sense in which, yeah, restoration between two parties where abuse has happened, if it's truly repentance and forgiveness and it's got, it's, yeah, Christ-centered, they both, yeah, they're both trying to make much of Jesus by, by restoring to one, yeah, restoring that relationship. That makes much of the gospel and that glorifies God. And so that is a, I do want to paint a picture of that is a good thing, like, Often, you know, oftentimes when marriages struggle um, and even sometimes even end in divorce, like when they come back together because they've turned from their sins and forgive one another, uh, and then in some beautiful cases like remarry, like that is that is a wonderful thing. Um, and yeah, that we want to we want to celebrate that ideal as it, as it magnifies God. At the same time. Um, we live in a, a broken world with broken people, and, and we have to accept that there are some things that only Christ is going to be able to set right. Um, and so, to your point, like, what do we absorb and forgive without diminishing the relationship? And, and what, do we, what do we not? It, I think it is, again, entirely case-dependent on what we are talking about. Um, yeah, like there's a wide spectrum between, you know, my life is in danger and I'm being critiqued semi-regularly in an unloving way. There's a wide spectrum there. How we work out the application of the principles of forgiveness, repentance, all those things in all of those, I don't think I'm going to be able to cover comprehensively there. Um, but I'll agree that we, we do want to model what Christ does, um, but we also need to remember that we are 
human beings in a fallen world with fallen natures. Um, and there are some things that only Christ can fully bring healing and restoration to. I'm sure that's unsatisfying, but uh, that is my answer. Um, we are a little bit over time, and so uh, I'm going to close us in prayer, and uh, we, can, we can continue to worship the Lord. Lord God, we do, uh, yeah, we, we pray to you um, about abuse in the church, um, everything from angry words to uh, murderous violence. Like these things happen, um, and Christians commit them. And Lord, we lament that. We are grieved by that, and we know that you are too. And so we do ask that you would bring healing, um, that you would protect those who are vulnerable, uh, that you would bring justice for those who perpetrate such things, uh, and that you would come soon, Lord, because we know that you're the one that's going to bring yeah, perfect peace and unity with you forever. And so hasten the day, Lord, that you would, you would return. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.